Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of DTC pod. I have a super exciting guest today with us, Thomas Shea from Agile. Thomas, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm excited to learn more about Agile, learn more about your little bit of your backstory. So if you could share a little bit of a high level with the audience of, of you and what Agile is all about, that would be great. Yeah, happy to. And, you know, very excited to be here. I think what you guys have built with this podcast is awesome. I think, you know, when we were starting our business, we looked for folks like yourselves, like these um, people that really have a good pulse on what's going on in the market to try to learn about it. So. I think what you guys are doing is great. I'm really excited to be here, but um, happy to give a, a quick introduction. So uh, my name is Tom Shea. I'm the co-founder and chief revenue officer of Agile Media Group. The company started in about 2018. My backstory as a founder, um, I went to Boston College undergrad for computer science, finance, and Chinese. Probably like many others out there, I, I thought finance was the only path forward and was probably pretty heavily influenced by my peer group at that time. Ended up uh, interning at a hedge fund that I had a return offer to in New York City, and that company got acquired in the time between I got the offer and was supposed to start the following year. Sort of threw my life for a loop, um, started applying pretty broadly, just like I need a job and ended up at McMaster Car Supply Company in Los Angeles, of all places, which was a pretty fun redirect, and um, was in a management capacity there. I think something that became very clear is that computer science background helped me automate a lot of processes. And so that culminated with an eventual offer to go to headquarters in Chicago as a full-time software engineer, working on our search algorithms, um, a lot of like deep ML tech, and um, around that time, I also enrolled at the University of Chicago for business school, um, and that was doing nights and weekends. So right when I enrolled, I got introduced uh, just through friends of a friend to my co-founder, uh, Max Flannery. Uh, this is probably 2018, just to frame the context here. And um, we were tinkering on something at the time. It was called adjacent advertising, and, and I'll get into that story. Um, but we tinkered on that, sort of used business school as like a a platform to move the business forward. Like, you know, you have all these group projects to like make a business idea and work on it. I'm like, you guys want to work on adjacent advertising, which it was called at the time. And fortunately got so many smart people to weigh in and, and give their perspective and it really moved the business forward. But to hop in a little bit deeper to the origin story, um, it was originally known as adjacent advertising. And the business concept was we were going to put digital screens on the back of 53 foot trailers traveling from like Chicago to Savannah, Georgia and back. And the premise was 
Um, you have a really captive audience. You have these drivers behind these semi trucks. And using my computer science background, we hooked up a Raspberry Pi to these digital screens that we mounted on the back of these vehicles. And we made the ads time and location aware. So as it was traveling down the highway for that five miles leading up to exit five, it would advertise for the McDonald's off that institution saying, hey, you can turn off here. At nighttime, maybe it's advertising for a hotel chain, et cetera. And as soon as it passed that exit five, it would start advertising for things off exit six. So um, sort of bring it more to the, the present day. What ended up happening with that iteration of the business is we got into the university um, incubator. It's called New Venture Challenge at University of Chicago. And we got to the final round and we got absolutely dragged through the mud by these venture capitalists that, that were the judges. And they took aim at two specific shoes. And I think, honestly, in hindsight, we, we were pissed when we got that feedback, but then we, you know, swallowed our pride and realized, hey, these, these people care about us and they want um, to see us succeed. And it was actually good, actionable feedback. So the two issues with that business, one, um, the capex of the screens. So these screens on, mounted on these trucks, you're talking like tens of thousands of dollars of capex and hardware, which like you can overcome if the fundamentals are there. You can do sale lease back arrangements to finance them. And the second more pressing one was this dream scenario of we'll get every McDonald's from Chicago to Savannah, Georgia and back was a total fallacy. And it was just like pure ignorance because we didn't know marketing, we didn't know trucking, anything at this, at this point. And the issue was, um, marketing spend gets allocated by franchises at the local, regional, and national level. And at this scenario where we would get Chicago to Savannah, Georgia only, because that's not regional and it's local, um, you would have to sell into every single individual franchise owner. Like people like, you know, my dad can own a franchise. And so to daisy chain that all together, they were like, this is an, this is an impossible business to scale until like you can get all of those once you're nationwide and you compete for a nationwide budget but right now you have to sell into every franchisee. And so we were faced with that uh, dilemma and the feedback was like, there's something here, prove that you can sell and attract ad demand in a simpler, more cost-effective way. So we switched the business model, rebranded it to Agile, and we went from 53-foot trucks to box trucks that are 26-foot to 18-foot, traveling the densest urban areas. So much greater visibility, more impressions. Now we could compete for regional dollars as opposed to these local dollars. Um, and honestly, I think we stuck around, just we stayed in the ring long enough to realize the actual problem to solve for was attribution. And the brands that we were approaching wanted to see things they were used to seeing on digital, like CAC, ROAS, CPV, et cetera. So when we made that switch, we leaned really hard into the tech side of things, whereby we now geofence every single truck every second capturing people's mobile phones that have location services enabled. And then we can see whether they were exposed to the branded last mile vehicle, say we're advertising for something like Chipotle. And then we can see if they download the Chipotle app, visit a physical Chipotle or go to chipotle.com. And then we can see what they've done after that offline media exposure, allowing us to back into things like CAC and give those people, those growth marketers who are used to seeing those things, the numbers that they need to understand whether this paid media investment is one that makes sense relative to paid social, relative to, you know, connected TV, et yeah. cetera. So I'm sure we'll dive deeper on that, but that's really the origin story. And I think the lesson there is like, 
you know, sometimes you just got to stay in the ring long enough to, to find the problem. I think we, we really just wanted to start a company as like two 24 year old guys. Um, and then just sort of stuck with it long enough to, for the, the problem to sort of slap us in the face. And, and then we built around that. Yeah, I think, and that's exactly what I was going to touch on. I think a lot of companies, you know, uh, definitely don't get it right on the first time. Um, On the second time, it's more so trying to fix, you know, what went wrong the first time. And then the third time, you actually optimize to build the business, the business model, etc. But, you know, from that V1 to that V3 period, you just have to stay long enough um in the ring so something jumps at you uh and it's your job to sort of spot those trends or or that path because oftentimes it'll it'll jump at you and it'll be obvious but only after you dig in deep enough for long enough it's it's it it might not be as obvious like a customer is not necessarily just going to explicitly give you the answer of what it is you should build um i'm curious why did you jump into this kind of advertising specifically especially you know 2018 like a time where everyone is starting a facebook ads agency um right. everyone is crushing it on on facebook ads so it's an unconventional path for for that period in time to go you know out of office um out of home advertising yeah and let me remind you we launched during the pandemic so uh the, the cards couldn't have been more stacked yeah. i think here's what we were realizing was if you looked at the history of how media dollars shifted hands over the past two decades. It used to be in radio, TV, print, out of home, like these traditional formats. And what we saw play out is the majority of that media spend consolidated among a finite number of digital channels. So that's like your meta, that's your TikTok. Um, and, you know, that made sense, right? You could see CAC, you could, you could, you had the attribution metrics to be able to justify the media investment. But the thing that we saw play out simultaneously, and you know, this is a D2C pod, I think this will really resonate, is um, people started to compete away the yields that existed in those finite channels. There's just a finite number of ones that are effective and that are people putting um, media spend behind. And so, you know, I always bring up Casper Mattress as like a darling child of the D2C world that um, unfortunately has had a little bit of a fall from grace now that they've been taken private. But for the first two years of that business, they were the first mover. No one was bidding on that keyword mattress, and, and they were really honestly printing money. But if you look at the modern landscape, you now have Purple, Helix, 8 Sleep, Sleepy, Sattva, like every big box retailer sort of figured that out, flooded that channel, and bid up the CPM, competed away the yield that existed there. So what we wanted to do, and it was more of like a giant experiment to see if it worked or not, is if we took an alternative format that hasn't had these attribution components and we layered on taking taking a lot of the technology that's already being used on digital bringing it to the physical world could we develop a product that could reduce cac relative to those overbought channels and in practice i think that you know we didn't know if it was going to work right it's part of like the test and you know everyone's always just running tests but um we found that the probably because it's been neglected so for so long, there was a little bit of an arbitrage scenario and that the value it was providing once you could actually put attribution behind it was resulting in CACs that were lower to lower than those um, uh, paid social channels. And so I, I attribute a lot of our success in to the fact that we're able to prove that out now. And, you know, I don't have a sales background. My co-founders have a sales background and we've been a successful sales um, individuals because 
we don't need to hard sell. We put uh, we view our job as to expose the data so that people can make the the most informed decision for their brands, um, and whether that's putting money behind out of home, paid social, paid search, etc. Like here's the data, make your own decision um, based on your numbers. Don't even tell me the CAC you're seeing elsewhere. I don't even want to know because I don't want any like bias. Just see if this makes makes sense for you. And so. Before our actual fundraise in December of 2021, I think um, the thing that actually resulted in a, a successful raise was honestly probably the retention rate that we had. So like, yeah, we're not a SaaS product, but we had like a 93% client retention rate These people renewing the campaigns and stuff. And um, that, you know, when you went to the fundraise, you're almost looked at as a SaaS company when you, you have such a sticky product. And so I think um, the investors took a lot of comfort in our ability to get that retention. And, and I can talk about more about how we got yeah. that and the B2B sale and, and trust and stuff like that. And so, you know, I, 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 I want to talk about the race, but I also one one question on that is um, what you don't act. You don't want to act as an agency, right? Like you, you right. just provide the data. Here's what the advertisement got. Here's what the data saying. It's totally on you to decide how do you want to use this, how much you want to spend. You're not going to say, I based on you know your business, I think you should do this or advertise here or there. Um, you're just you're just basically a channel. Yeah, and and it's not you know we don't have insight to the rest of the business to know what the correct decision is, and I don't think we try to pretend that we do. It's more like objective reporting on here's how the campaign has fared for sure. you make the decision that's right for you and, and that's always cool. been our stance and so okay speaking of you know uh staying alive long enough in this spirit in this period of time to sort of figure this out figure out what's the sample data we need to validate this how did you capitalize throughout this period of time to stay alive long enough um and what were some of the key decisions that did allow you to stay alive um, for that long, all the way until until the fundraise, and and what did that fund yeah. look like? Yeah, totally. So um, we tried to raise venture money for a while, and we were like pre-product, pre-revenue. I think if I did it all over again, I would have take, taken a lesson that having a product in market, having some product market fit and some clients goes a really long way, and we probably shouldn't have spent so much time on trying to fundraise in the beginning as we ended up doing. So really, we like swore off venture money. We were like, maybe this is even a venture fundable business. Like it's not a SaaS product. It's more of a linear scale than like some logarithmic or algorithmic growth. Um, but in terms of how we, we pulled it off, we did a really small friends and family raise just to give us um, the funds we needed to offer something to the market that was essentially like too good to be true. So for our initial clients, what we did is we sold the campaigns way below cost. You know, we're almost like giving these things away just to be able to get the data to understand if we've developed something that's accretive to brands. Um, that ended up playing out. All four of those brands ended up renewing with us. The next batch of advertisers we sold, we used leverage a lot of those learnings and those case studies from the first sample set to sell at break even. And then um, by the end in pre-raise, we had advertising campaigns that we're operating at around like a 60% gross margin. And so when we did go and make the raise um, or, or go out to, we swore off venture money, and we didn't want to go back. But I think when you 
what happens is when you have those sort of numbers and that progress, um, it becomes much more attractive to investors. So we were actually trying to close out like a smaller friends and family round and um, the raise ended up going pretty quickly because I think investors saw a profit. We built it profitably. The the fundamentals were there. We we got, you know, probably like 700 grand in revenue uh, in our first year while only burning something like 150. And, um, you know, it, the company had like, it could have been a lifestyle business, to be honest. And, and there's reasons we felt we did have to raise uh, venture money when the strategy changed a little bit. Um, but in terms of just like staying in the ring and, and you know, I'm not going to say it's easy, right? Like we were burning our personal savings and stuff like that. But something that I will maintain is entrepreneurship is, I think, inherently thought of as a pretty risky uh, concept. And I think I sort of have like a counterculture take on that, that entrepreneurship does not have to be risky because my co-founder, Max, and I, we kept our full-time jobs um, through the first, through adjacent advertising, through the pivot to the point where we were actually booking revenue and then we realized, hey, this is getting too overwhelming that in order to actually like fulfill and um, do right by our clients, we need to step out of our full-time jobs and, and do it full-time. And so all that sort of happened around the same time. Um, and obviously investors wanted to see that you were 100% in it all the way. Um, so like, in my opinion, the reason we were able to raise friends and family money, the reason we were able to stay in the ring is we had de-risked the business so much that when we actually went out to market, and I'm going to say our family and friends first, we could confidently say that we don't know what's going to happen here, but from a pure expected value equation, I do genuinely think we have a better chance of returning the capital you invest in us at a higher rate than the S&P 500, just from like a odds perspective, like maybe 10% chance of success, but a way higher you know, potential return versus what you could get in the S&P. And I think also framing it in that way, like it shows you understand the opportunity cost of their capital and um, that you've done your homework. So, you know, we're risk averse people. Um, and maybe that's not always the case in entrepreneurship, but um, that's how we played it. We needed to get ourselves there more than anything. And then yeah. that confidence just sort of like snowballs when, when you, you know, make that switch. Like, I think we have it. Yeah, I love that because you know, it, it gives the investors a lot of confidence for that they understand um, that you know what is expected in these kind of returns and you can speak the financial game because that immediately removes the objection of, I don't think this entrepreneur understands what venture capital money is used for and what we expect from it. And if expectations aren't aligned, we're not going to fund a lifestyle business or, totally. you know, something that isn't going to bring, you know, that return. Um, you know, I've been, I've been through the ringer myself and, Right. Um, when I have investors, you know, start start doing me, uh, start doing the math of, of return that they need on their fund. I'm like, let's just use this time for me to keep pitching on this um, <laughs> because, uh, yeah, all funds have different kind of expectations and returns. But at the end of the day, venture capital is venture capital. So I loved how 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 you frame that. And I also love about the fact that entrepreneurship doesn't have to be risky because um, you read a lot of these articles of like, oh, my God, he like sold his entire 
house. Um, you know, they were they were back to living with their parents with with their kids and everything. And um, if that wouldn't have worked, would have been screwed. But right, um, exactly. it doesn't have to be that way, especially when all you're trying to prove is like, what is the MVP of trying to prove this out in terms of whether it's unit economics, whether there's a market for it, and I have a place. Um, to find uh, customers from. So what, what would you say were some of like the defining moments um, that you said, okay, I'm ready to to make the leap? Did you race around and then do the leap? Or, you know, you just had so much confidence in, in, in those initial data tests that, that you just went for it? Yeah, I think it's more of the latter case. Um, we, we really just, I think, had, can, got enough data to convince ourselves that we were onto something here, like product market fit seems like it was um, starting to happen. And I think the biggest thing for us was the client retention rate. Like I know I already shared that, but something that we did in the beginning, which who knows, like obviously there's so much luck in this, but we were pretty intentional about saying no to business when we didn't feel like we were the right fit for that brand or the business case they were coming to us with. And it was really hard in the beginning to say no to revenue when it felt like revenue was the biggest priority. But I think being pretty intentional about who we did business with and played only in spaces where we thought we could win resulted in that retention rate that gave the, the investors the confidence that um, not only was there a product that seemingly worked, but um, people were renewing and you know the, the reputation that we were developing as like a data first out of home company was something that was um, pretty attractive. So I always go back to retention rate and, and sometimes you have to make sacrifices, I think on revenue, like could we have gone, could we have ended up with a higher net revenue before we went out to raise a, like an institutional round? Absolutely. Um, but I think it would have come at the cost of that client retention. Yeah. And, and, and that without... stickiness is powerful. Yeah, and without without the subscription model, you're basically operating off the, off of these cohort analysis. And what happens is totally. when you say yes to that business initially, you're gonna get that dollar amount. But what's gonna happen is you might spread out those cohorts in different industries, categories, verticals, and so the the needs of those customers are eventually gonna spread you out too thin, and you're gonna end up satisfying none of them because they all have different needs i'm sure serving people in the food and beverage industry might be different than serving people that are just trying to get you to download apps right totally totally yeah and I, I, you touch on something that's really interesting about our business and probably why we're in this ecosystem and, and even on this podcast like we went to market as like data first people and um you know we were like we kept getting these renewal rates and we grew alongside these uh, digitally native brands to the point where We've increased the rate. You could definitely afford a billboard. Like you're a very successful company and you're still only doing truck side advertising. Like what are we missing? Or, or like, why do you continue to work with us? I, I'd love to pretend that we're good guys and like, you know, all that stuff. But what we heard from our customers really unlocked something for us that's made us stay in the CPG space specifically. And that was when digitally native brands buy a billboard to the consumer, everyone knows that they bought ad space. However, when you brand a vehicle, because we're anchored on Amazon trucks and liquor delivery and all these like, you know, Coca-Cola's private fleet, um, what was starting to happen was people were, were thinking that the trucks were delivering on behalf of those digitally native brands. And so you've given these brands who 
um, are not far along enough to have like a physical presence or like, you know, like a bunch of these brands that started as digitally native, they have retail institutions now and they're not profitable. They're there to convey legitimacy and a presence in the market. And so what we realized was people were buying us because there was like a behavioral psychology play that was going on. People were thinking that, okay, those trucks are delivering that product that is on that truck. Um, so like topical to <laughs> yeah. one of our first clients and people, it, and it's crazy. And, and so when you think about your options and where you would spend an out of home, um, this behavioral psychology hack does a lot of things. So I, my favorite example and my dream client, if anyone listening has a, a contact here, you need to let me know. But like the, the most crystal, crystal clear example of this is 1-800-Flowers. If there was 50 1-800-Flowers trucks that popped up in Manhattan overnight, there is a very clear like, oh shit moment to the consumer where they're thinking like, all of these flowers are being delivered. Like what holiday did I miss? When's the last time I got my partner flowers? Like I, I need to consider getting flowers. And so people started associating these branded vehicles with like, oh, you know what's going on? That's, they're moving so much product. And I guess my neighbors are consuming this product. And if my neighbors are consuming it, maybe I sh I'm more willing to give it a shot than I may have been previously. And so that's sort of like aura and legitimacy. It actually even shows in the attribution data. So like we did HR software campaigns in the beginning. And to your point, we straddled all these different verticals. And then we realized just like being objective about the data, the performance was just way higher for CPG, QSR, and people who benefited from that illusion of scale. And so we sort of redirected our efforts um, and like really, I think, have gotten to this ecosystem community of CPG founders because it's those people we can uniquely provide value for. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that when I looked at your website initially, that's what I thought. I was like, wow, people, I because I saw one of the companies we've had on the podcast and I'm like, I'm sure they don't have that level of distribution yet. And then I'm like, damn, that's maybe that's why they're buying this kind of advertising space. So I thought, wow, I guess people are paying for the value of perception. Um, and then I was like, makes sense, right? Like, you know, say a buyer from Whole Foods is sitting at a restaurant and he was totally. pitched this company five months ago and he had passed, you know, the FOMO is going to kick in where happens he's like, all the time. <laughs> it's yes. investor, it's investors. It happens a lot. It's like, oh my God, that company's really moving. Yeah. It's buyers. And I, I could talk about how we support D to C when they get into retail and stuff. But yeah, it's um, I, I do. It's so multidimensional. Yeah, I do want to talk, and I want to talk about sales. I want to talk about all this stuff and and go deeper into this. But so the audience doesn't get lost, I want you to walk me through the journey of what becoming a customer would look like. Sure. What is that process like? Let's say I'm a DDC, yeah. or, you know, a CPG company. Um, what is the process? Yeah. So it typically, I'd say there's three reasons people buy us. One they care about reducing CAC. And that's how we got our start. That's what we built everything around is like the prove it to me. Um, the other one is they're dropping a new product, like maybe some new SKU or a new flavor or something like that. And they want to quickly get the word out about it. And the third one is they're launching in retail. And I'll talk through each of these, but um, from the journey of becoming a client, pretty much let's use New York City just because it's our home market. We have 3,800 box trucks under management that we have um, insight into. And at the truck level, we have the performance, we have the demographics that, that those trucks reach and the psychographics. And so when we're thinking about pairing a campaign, 
there's different or pairing a campaign or creating a campaign for a brand. There's this whole asset selection process that we undergo. So if you cared about reducing tax and you were like a, a newer brand that was very like D to C heavy, um, we're, we're looking largely at the performance of the trucks. So 3,800 trucks under management, most trucks are awful for advertising. Um, 220,000 impressions over a 90 day average, but the top quartile of trucks get 1.5 to 2.2 million uh, views over that same period. So we're, we're definitely thinking about performance in the context of a digitally native brand that cares about reducing tax. We're also looking at, um, in addition to performance, which I'd say is the, the obvious first one, is what information do you have on your consumer and who you're trying to reach? Because at the individual truck level, we have access to age, household income, education, race, but also affinity groups. So is this person over-indexed to being an organic shopper or um, someone who likely owns a pet? And there's all sorts of interesting technology that allows us to back into that. Another really fascinating thing that is starting to play out, because I think the, the progression of a lot of DDC companies is that eventually that retail play. And again, I think a lot of this comes down to luck and you sort of, we just walked into it. Um, a lot of brands eventually launch in retail and they're tasked with how do you drive sell through? And it's usually really important because you need those initial uh, repurchases from those buyers to actually establish yourself in that, in that organization. And so when we're faced with those business scenarios, we do take a little bit of a step back on performance, but we index really heavily on geography. So if someone got into 50 Whole Foods, what we're asking for when they're becoming a client is give us all the doors that you're in. We're going to plot all of them on a map and we're going to draw a one mile radius around each one because there's a lot of psychology studies that 90% of people buy within one mile where they're domiciled in urban areas. And so we have all the doors radii built around them and then we overlay all the trucks routes that we have in our inventory over that same plot to understand which assets can we put into this campaign that hit support the most amount of doors that you have um, distribution to? Because then we're looking at, okay, how many GPS pings do they have in each of those radii around those key points of distribution as a way to drive sale through and honestly support a lot of doors with a fairly inexpensive buy. Because otherwise you're, you know, you might be buy buying a billboard on the Upper East Side to support five doors and then one on the lower east side to support five and one, you know, one on the lower west side. And we're able to honestly, with like as little as one truck, find something that's optimized to support driving sales through there. So I'd say like, we definitely led with data um, and also realized that as the progression of these digitally native brands that uh, many do end up in retail, we also have a product that um, allows us to support them as they're sort of growing or, or progressing to the next phase of their business. And it's and it's as as a as a brand, I would buy this um, based on impressions. Um, you know, is it the traditional advertising model? Um, you know how how it's how the business model works. How I would buy it. Yeah, totally. So uh, we generally sell it at a fixed rate. I think it's still early days, and we're we're still trying to figure out the best way to price things. Um, but impressions is how media generally gets sold. I think what we put our name behind is uh, more so the CAC that results. So I'll talk you through how we back into CAC for a digitally native brand. Um, so what we're doing, we're keying off an API from the GPS in each truck. And that gives us a latitude, longitude, and timestamp. 
And we are drawing geofences around that vehicle every second, capturing mobile phones that have location services enabled. So that's your, if Tinder is on in the background, if the Weather Channel, if even like silly things like Words with Friends, they're selling anonymized data. And so we're able to say, okay, which mobile phones fell within the geofence around the branded vehicle, capture them, and then we can see the rest of the consumer journey. For a digitally native brand, we'd be putting pixels on your website, you know, the homepage and then the post conversion page. And then, you know, it's a cool narrative to push like, oh, now I can see if someone saw the truck and then bought something. But what that doesn't tell you is what was uniquely driven by your media investment in Agile. So the way we've solved for that is pretty clever. There's a hypothesis group where it's just those people captured around the branded vehicles. And then the way we build a control group is we rerun the truck's GPS route on a 10 minute delay. And there's like a ghost truck lagging behind the branded truck offset by 10 minutes in time like always running. So now you have a branded truck capturing mobile phones, a ghost truck. And what we do is we redraw a geofence around this imaginary truck and we capture a population of mobile phones we know have not been exposed to the branded vehicle. And now you have two groups, one that we know have seen the branded vehicles, one that has not, but all other variables are held constant. So equal likelihood to have seen PR, connected TV, paid social, even other forms of out of home. And then we look at the difference in conversion behavior between those two discrete audiences to back into incrementality. So if a thousand people converted in the control group and 2,500 converted in the hypothesis group, you can say with statistical rigor that your media investment in Agile drove 1,500 incremental conversions. And then based on what the media investment was, you can back into things like cost to acquire a customer. That's super cool. And I, I, I don't mean to keep geeking on this, but I love this stuff. So, uh, <laughs> so okay, you get the anonymized data, but then if that person does buy or purchase, say from that brand, now you do have that data. I don't know if you guys are, are there yet or not in terms of like identifying the individual or saying like, if, you, if you've if you had these other trucks going around, okay, well, we know now who has converted. Um, we also happen to know exactly where we can find more sets of these people in these other routes or these other locations. So, um, but then I don't know where that comes into play of like what you suggest or not for the second campaign because we got, you know, that goes back to the point of like, you don't want to be an agency, but maybe you just share this right. data. Yeah, no. And uh, like I let off with, we, we report on the data about like who is converting, what does that consumer look like? I would say generally speaking, it, it tracks pretty well with what's shared up front because we're usually asking for like an export of your meta data or your uh, meta as in like the company or like the Google Analytics mm -hmm. to understand how to build a campaign to reach an audience that over index is likely to over index to your brand. Um, granted, there's always like micro optimizations and stuff as you talk about the next campaign. I think one that's really fascinating is around creative optimization. So like going back to my roots in behavioral psychology, you know, something that we're learning is like, where should the logo be placed? Well, it should be on the top third because some people will see a taxi as it's passing by and it'll obstruct part of the creative. If you leave one thing, you want them to remember the logo. Another thing we've learned is the, the sides of the trucks they're 26 by nine foot panels, like a literal size of a billboard up close and personal, but you can only get away with like 10 words of copy or less because the dwell time um, or the viewing time is six seconds or less. But the rear panel, despite being nine foot by nine foot is actually um, vehicular traffic that's seeing it. It's not pedestrian traffic as often. So you can actually get away with a much longer message with more copy because the dwell time is six to 30 seconds. And I think my favorite is around color optimization. 
like one thing that we're seeing in the data is we are hardwired and anchored as humans to re have a strong visual reaction to the color red because we're anchored on brake lights, stop signs, and stop lights. It gives you this like stop, pay attention, look at your surroundings uh, reaction. So we're seeing things like even color optimizations are um, revealing their power in the data. So That's cool. you talk about geeking out. I think that yeah, stuff yeah. really gets me excited. Um, and it's all about like, you know, mankind's pretty impressionable. And, um, you know, there's ways to tap into that for um, ways that add value for brands. Yeah. So um, and, and these trucks are empty. I'm just curious because I'm like, is this a are you an advertising company, a data company or a logistics company? <laughs> I'd say we're a media owner yeah. um, and more like the channel leader for truck side. So these trucks are already delivered. They're profitable assets in isolation. So they're supporting someone's livelihood. Like they're delivering soap to laundromats. Um, they're delivering pasta to wholesalers, stuff like that. And the benefit of that is while it's less um, customizable, not having, not having the lease on our books allows us to be asset light as a company. So like that person is already using it, paying the lease, supporting their livelihood. And we're just extracting greater utility out of an asset that's already in the market because this advertising on trucks is not new. People have just been using it for B2B. Like the guy delivering soaps can put Tom's soap delivery company, but less than 1% of the audience can take an action on that brand when they see it in the context of something that's more B2C a much greater percent of the audience can take an action. And I think the way we've been able to ameliorate some of the concerns about the lack of like customizability of routes is that deep supply side. So, you know, having 3,800 box trucks in New York City alone, like you have an area where we're going to be able to source an asset that's that's suitable and really hitting those those locations that you needed to. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So let's talk about, you know, um, you know, sales partnerships, B2B. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the operations yeah, totally. that, that were able to to get this thing off the ground. So um, you have the data sets, you have something that's valuable. Now, how are we going to find people? to buy it. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, I think we talked offline that you guys didn't have any sales experience. So, um, you know, how, yeah. how did you go out there and approach these companies and, and what were some of the biggest, you know, key lessons in, in the operations of, of B2B sales? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great discussion topic and, and something we've learned a lot about over time. I think something that I've always felt really strongly about is um, you sell trust first and media second. And I stand by that. Like if someone is going to put their trust in me by way of a media investment and handing over, like I, I, again, going back to the S and P, like I know the opportunity cost that exists there. And it's something that I think as an organization, we take very seriously. So we are, um, we almost need it to succeed more than the brand does. Because when you think about the, the circles that we walk in and the brands that we work with, it's, it's a pretty like tight knit ancestral community. Like all the people that have been on this podcast are people that we talk to. And so when we thought about building an organization, nothing matters more than maintaining the trust of the people that, that are willing to take a risk on you. And because what we, we know will happen is when we get to the next brand we want to do business with, the first thing they're going to do is call up the founder of whoever we've worked with because they probably know them and they've probably talked many times before. And we know we need them 
to say when someone picks up that phone and says, what do you think about Tom, Max, and Agile, that we're getting like great guys, great company, they always do the right thing. And we stand by that. And sometimes that even requires losing money on campaigns to maintain trust. And I think that's an investment we'll make 100% of the time because the LTV in B2B business is so high that it's worthwhile to, to bend over backwards to maintain that trust. And I think that's something that we've done a really good job of, of in nurturing in this community. Um, it's just leading with trust. And, you know, we become, we, we feel like we're part of the brand um, and we like intimately care about um, trying to move it forward. And like, that's, that's even as silly as like telling all of our friends about it and becoming like brand loyalists and advocates because we know that stuff moves the needle and like that word of mouth flywheel is, is what makes business is succeed because paid, paid media is like a treadmill and to build a sustainable brand, you do need these brand advocates and loyalties and, and build a community around your brand. So um, we go the extra mile, we lose money on campaigns often because we know that if you just are like relentless and ruthless about doing the right thing by the people that put their trust in you, everything will sort of fall into place. And, Unfortunately, like that feedback loop and what we've seen happen, that's largely played out. So that's sort of been our journey and like learning from, from B2B. Obviously, I know a lot of people are, are probably listening to this are in the B2C space. I think a lot of those lessons traverse industries um, just in, in a little bit of a different context. Like we just did a panel at FounderMade um, with Nick Sharma, Brian Rappaport, and Maggie Sauce. And Maggie Sauce from Red Antler was like, you know, as a brand, you need to give, 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 and then ask. You don't ask up front. You, you figure out ways to just like do so many things right by your audience. And then you ask once that trust is nurtured. And so um, just like an interesting sort of parallel between different segments. Yeah, I feel like especially in the early days when you're the founder and, you know, it's you and your co-founder doing the sales time is very limited. And so the, the way you can shrink the sales process is by having high trust out there, reviews, having people that are coming to you and they already want to buy because they already heard the word, the good word about you. Last thing you want to do is ruin that trust. Now you have to spend a month or more time, you know, emailing, following up, building case studies to try and, and convince them, you know, from that bad story they heard from someone else. So, um, you know, you, you could use that money um, in, in the beginning to just make up for just not having to spend so much time on each sales cycle because that's what's ultimately going to hold you back and people don't feel as confident you know you might convert some they might not retain as well because they already have bad taste from what they've heard about you um totally. so i agree with that approach it, it and it's true i think it's true of b2c or b2b it's like sustainability and growth um it's probably not going to come completely from your paid strategy it's going to come from your ability to build a, a community of advocates and people that trust you especially um, again so especially you know we, we talked about retention but i think that also comes down with icp you know you're trying you can only serve so many people um totally. and you have to figure out who's that icp um who is that customer that you can double down and, and go after so you know along those lines like where where are you guys at today how many people are in your team what is what is the the layout you know the org uh team look like yeah 
Sure. So it's my co-founder, Max, and I. Um, we hired two seasoned veterans onto the organization as CEO and CMO, respectively. The CEO, Mitch Gordon, um, he comes from, he was global head of transportation and investment bank at Solomon Smith Barney. So deep ties to our supply side and also like a, a strong capital markets guy with CFO of two public companies. And, and when we started working together, he was the hired CEO of three trucking companies merging together. So a very clear gray haired um, strategy there. I think it's something that we realized very early on is like the truck side of the market is very like family organization and like respects that. And it was something that we, we obviously didn't have. We were like 24. Um, and then on the agency side, like the advertising agencies and how to break into these bigger brands, we hired Mark Shoshan, who um, was credited with building Ciroc from a budget liquor to the brand it is today, brought on P. Diddy as the spokesman, et cetera, while he was at Diageo, and then was chief client officer at Publicis. So very strong ties to the ad agency world. And that's that was our exec team. Um, we raised a $5 million round in December of 2021. I'd say the current state of affairs is we're about 14 folks distributed across the country, um, operating in the top 50 markets with campaigns, I'd say, in about 15 of them live at, at the, the time of uh, this podcast. Um, and it's growing. So, you know, I'm, you and I chatted beforehand of all the trials and tribulations. I think people are your most valuable asset when building an organization. And something that's always really stuck with me, and I think I saw it on Twitter, to be honest, is like 10% of your people you hire will be A candidates. 60% will be B candidates, 30% will, 30 will be C candidates, but the A candidates will be more than 10 times productive than the B candidates. So, you know, I think we're always in search of those A candidates. And when we see them, um, you know, we latch on and, and try to make uh, or strike a deal that is um, something that gets them excited and uh, about being part of our organization. So Three, are there talent, talent is your most valuable resource always, in my opinion. That is very true. Are there any specific roles you're hiring for right now? I'd say, um, so we pulled a lot of individuals from um, my past life at McMaster Car on the operations side, because I think that's, you know, it's a McMaster Car is a di distribution company that's 6,000 employees, really knows what operations at scales looks like. Um, so that's been... That's what we hired for first to build the groundwork because when we hired salespeople, we wanted them to feel like they could sell anything and not have this reservation about like, oh, can the operations team execute? And so I think that was a pretty good move just to give the sales team confidence that we could execute and that's largely how it's played out. The sales side has been more of a journey. I think just not having experience in that arena, um, it's where we've learned the most and where I'd say we're still always on the lookout for top tier talent. Um, I took over as the chief revenue officer about three weeks ago and we've sort of redirected the strategy, um, which I'm really excited about. But, you know, I'm sure we'll always be hiring uh, yeah. for all roles, right? Um, you, you always want to be leveling up and, and the, con the company continues to grow in, in a way that we want to make sure that the folks that we do have the team feel well supported and, and don't burn out and stuff like that. For sure. So what is next? I mean, you know, are we going to see agile in, you know, 50 plus cities? What, what's the goal? Um, where, where are you trying to, to go to next? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, we always get the question of like, do you want to sell? Do you want to get acquired? And 
who knows, right? I think anyone who tries to answer that question is probably lying to themselves about what they want. Um, I think there is beauty to controlling a marketing channel. Um, I think it will continue to pay dividends, like regardless, like if someone wants to launch a CPG brand, like, all right, well, take it over. If you want to run for mayor of Miami, like, all right, bring out the trucks, like, let's go. So there is something I think, um, yeah, intoxicating about, (laughs) yeah. But there's something intoxicating about control of a media channel in general. Like, you know, so many companies have to spend billions of dollars to to build that channel. And it's one we've been able to come into um, pretty organically and pretty quickly. What's next for Agile? I mean, um, I I think I'll share this because a lot of people listening will appreciate this strategy. When we pitched to our investors how we wanted to build this company, we were very clear that we were going to do a lot of low gross margin campaigns and operate at a loss to attract the, the, the people that are on this podcast, the brands that are on these podcasts. And it's very intentional and strategic. And I'll talk you through our rationale there because it seems like, oh, you're just going to burn money forever. Well, if you've looked at how podcast marketing and influencer marketing have sort of unfolded in those channels uh, have developed, it started with the challenger brands and the startups because they were able to deploy budget quickly. They're open to iterating. They're open to testing. If you, you know, it was Mac Weldon and Tommy John underwear. You look at podcast ads today. I listened to one today. It was McDonald's and then Facebook trying to say that they're not a creepy company. And so I think the learnings that we got from that is what you need to do to get to the next tier to start competing for the ad agency business in the fortune 500 business is create the narrative that, okay, all of the challenger brands, Fortune 500 company that you're losing market share to are doing this type of advertising. And you're losing market share to them in part because they're they're executing and taking advantage of this channel. And so from our perspective, it's created a really cool ecosystem where I don't think we're giving back, but we're venture subsidizing out-of-home campaigns and coming to market with something that usually ends up being the first out-of-home execution for a brand just because of the price point because they know we're subsidizing with venture capital. And then that gives us what we need to eventually get to the next level to go after the Fortune 500 companies and say, hey, look what's happening here. Sephora, like we have seven of the products sold in your store and they're all running these campaigns and you're not running campaigns. And I think that allows us to um, get to a point where we can extract significant gross margin and still deliver, deliver a compelling product because it becomes a matter of survival for those Fortune 500 brands. And then just like influencer, just like podcast ads, you look at them today, what inevitably happens is those Fortune 500s catch on. They realize they go into the channel and blow out the CPM so that those challenger brands can no longer compete in that arena. So that's sort of the bet we're taking as a brand. And unfortunately, it's allowed us to have a lot of velocity in the, the founder network because of that reality like everyone sort of understands the game that we're playing and they know that they're benefiting benefiting from it and there's a little bit of an arbitrage scenario playing out because it is um it helps move us forward and so this is cool little like win-win-win scenario in the short term so the future of agile i mean it's going to be a sad day when we have to leave working with all these fellow founders because it's it's so inspiring i get so much energy from people that are so visibly passionate about what they're building but um Eventually, we I think we do have to bridge that gap to to get to the point where the 
the financials of the company makes sense, yeah, right? I, and, and that comes from those established brands. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, this book, Crossing the Chasm, which talks about the early adopters, um, uh, you know, the, the, the early adopters and then the late majority, the early majority, the late majority. So totally. from, from early market to, to mainstream market, you have to cross that chasm first. Um, and you want to make that easy on yourself. You know, you don't, you don't want to climb the hill up the wrong way, uh, you know, the wrong side of the hill, which is going to be a much steeper route um, where you can just keep growing, get that validation, get, get, and then those brands from Sephora as an example, I mean, they'll refer you and it'll just be way easier to get up there. So I'm excited to follow along your journey. Um, You know, this has been uh, really fun. And so, you know, I want to, for you, for the audience, like where can they keep up with the journey from Agile and and where can people find you, Tom? Yeah, for sure. I'm tshay at agile.co. Couldn't get the .com domain. (laughs) Same over here. So all good. Yeah, right. You and me both. Um. I'm on Twitter at tshay0314. I'd say that's probably honestly becoming my most active channel because what we've learned is fellow founders are inaccessible via email and um, LinkedIn. However, they do love to post and they, you know, even if they're getting, they're getting three likes on a post, you interact with that post, you're like one fourth of their (laughs) mind here. So, you know, I told you it started as, hey, I have to do this because of lead gen. Unfortunately, I've really just found like a sense of community online and it's it's morphing from a lead gen thing to more just like this is the corner of the internet and the people that, um, you know, I just like being around. So I'm active on Twitter. You could find me on there and, um, you know, hopefully you'll keep reading about us if we play our cards right. And I got a, a lot of brands in the pipeline that... I think you're going to be excited to see partnering with Agile. Awesome. And then the .com domain is, is coming soon. Yeah, right. Someone, uh, someone's got me levers they can pull there. I'm all ears. All right, Tom. Well, uh, thank you for being on. This was a super fun episode. And uh, yeah, that's, that's it for this episode of DTC Pod.